fellow believers. Praise God, Christ is risen from the dead. And a word from his word. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Praise Jesus Christ. All right, good to see you guys this morning. Um, Super thankful to be here with you on Resurrection Sunday on Easter. If you're a guest with us, I want you to know my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are absolutely uh, thrilled to have you with us this morning. We are grateful for the opportunity that you have taken to come out. You know, we know that for some people that you're not typically at church on Sunday, but if you're here today um, because today is Easter and you want to come with your family or you want to, in that way, honor Jesus by coming, we are grateful for that and we want to thank you for doing that. And we hope that and pray that this morning will be a great blessing to you. A lot of times you'll show up and you say, I feel kind of weird. I'm not used to being in church like this. It's a different context. But you know what? Why don't you come anticipating that God might speak to you in a very special way this morning? And uh, I know it's different for you if you're here and you're not a Christian, but hey, you know, it's an opportunity that you have uh, that doesn't come around a whole lot to hear God's Word. One of the things that we do here and that we believe very strongly is that we preach what the Word of God says and we try to stick with that. We try not to go in other directions. We want to stay right with the Word of God because that's safe. And so this morning, that's what you're going to hear. We're going to preach from the Word of God, and we're going to preach to you uh, God's Word, His good, rich, encouraging, loving, and kind Word that is delivered to us. So let me pray for us before we get into this morning's message. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy in leading us here. We are grateful that we can stand here. We're grateful that we have the power of the resurrection at our disposal. We are thankful that we are not wasting our time, that this Christian life is true and it is real because Jesus got up from the dead. And we are so grateful that we can proclaim that this morning and we can proclaim that with confidence. And we are so thankful and happy that we can sit now before your word and to be instructed by your word right here in Ephesians chapter 2, this incredible text. And we pray that you would come with your power and your strength upon us and that we would be, our eyes would be open, that you would literally do a work in this room this morning, a spiritual work that we cannot see, that we cannot understand, that you would open blind eyes, that you would unstop deaf ears, that you would cause people to see who you are for the first time this morning. That cannot happen in the power of my own words. That certainly cannot happen in my own strength. It is going to have to be a move of your spirit. And we pray and we invite your precious presence with us. And we ask that you would do that for us in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You know, I was thinking on the way here that what's really interesting about the resurrection is that no one has ever found the body of Jesus. It was just thinking about, you just let that kind of sit on you for a minute. In that every man who has ever died in the history, probably, of humanity, unless they were, you know, in a war or an area where they were, their body was murdered and they were thrown out and sometimes bodies are not found. But a figure as prominent as Jesus Christ, that his body was never found, ever. And so this morning we come to celebrate the resurrection knowing that Jesus got up from the grave and Jesus made a final payment for our sins and by getting up from the grave secured our salvation in him. So we have hope this morning. I am so thankful because there's no gospel, there's no hope, there's no salvation, there's no anything without the resurrection. If it didn't happen, the whole thing, Paul says, is a sham. But the reality is it did happen And all of history has tried to turn it over and act like it didn't happen, but it's clear that it did. And this morning we come to a passage that is going to be remarkably relevant for us regarding the resurrection. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I certainly have. It's a situation where you have a really kind of really scary dream, really bad dream. You know, maybe a loved one died, maybe a spouse or your child or something like that. And, and you're, maybe you wake up in a cold sweat. You're just really, I mean, w- whoa, it's heavy. And you come up out of that and you wake up and for a, a moment, you, you're still like, did that really happen? And you got to talk yourself, you know what I'm talking about, into believing, wait a minute, that really was just a dream. That didn't actually happen. Woo, so glad that was a dream. Have you ever had that experience? You know what I'm talking about? So this happened to me when I was in India. Um, I was over doing uh, some mission work and... A lot of times there's this spiritual oppression that I've noticed that takes place that when I leave or go somewhere, especially overseas, it feels like there's this this assault. And in the middle of the night, I had this awful dream, terrible dream about my wife and my children that they had been murdered. And I, and I, and I woke up and it was, I mean, it was so vivid. It was so real. It was unbelievable. And the first thing I did when I got up was I called home, obviously, and to hear my wife answer the phone, and to hear at that time we just had one son, Judah, and to be able to talk to them was an incredible relief. I mean, I was unbelievably grateful. Maybe you've had another situation like this in your life where it was a a, a near car wreck. You know, you just kind of barely avoided it. And you knew that if it was just one second earlier or just one turn sooner, you, you, you could have been killed. You would have been off the road. Something would have happened. But when you come out of that, you realize you just for a moment, you're just unbelievably grateful for God's protection. It, it's a near miss. Okay, so it's, it's, it's this extreme scariness in one moment and then incredible relief in the other. That's a bit of the emotional roller coaster that we have right here in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and, and the point really is this, is that we will never ever appreciate the life that we have, if we don't meditate, hear me, on the death that we've come from. And that's what Paul does here. I mean, the main theme in these verses is, in fact, the main theme of the Bible, which is, but God. Verse 4. The, the, the fact that there's a God who intervenes, who steps into the mess of our life at the most crucial moment possible and raises us up, who rescues us. That God comes after sinners 
And, and when God comes after sinners, he does this in an unmistakable way. Think about this. Jesus is the supreme example of what I'm talking about. When Jesus comes to earth, as we've already sung, God becomes man and dwells among us. So what you have in the incarnation is God's loud, booming, and screaming voice that he is coming after runners like you and me in a loud way. I mean, how much louder does it get than God becoming man to live with us? I mean, how much louder of a testimony could that be? The death and the burial, the resurrection of the Son of God, what they show us is that God spares no expense in coming after wicked fugitives like you and me. And you can do a study of other religions. You can investigate whatever religion you want in the world. But only in Christianity does God become one of his own in order to rescue his own. God becomes man in order to rescue man. Consider the lavishness of God's love, the greatness of his love. Consider the expenditure of God's love to send himself, to send his son into the world to become man to save us. And what we'll see today is the great link that God has gone to rescue sinful outlaws like you and me. If the person of Jesus tells us anything, it tells us that God confronts human rebellion and human sin in the most dramatic way possible. Now, before we look at these verses in chapter 2, it's important to note their connection with chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Paul is going to tell us in those verses, as we've already seen, that God's power is at work in those who believe, which is a great comfort. And Pastor Mark preached that. His power presently is at work in our life. And then he says, what kind of power is this? He says, it's the same power, in fact, that raised Jesus from the dead. And now when we get to chapter 2, what he says is this same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises up dead sinners like you and me. In other words, it takes nothing short of resurrection power to take a wicked, fugitive, sinful man of God with a hard heart and to turn his heart around and make him love God. That takes resurrection power. Now, I know it's Easter Sunday. And I know that for some people, Easter is about bunnies and Easter eggs. And for other people, Easter is about, you know, a nice suit or it's about, uh, you know, a new dress or something or, or spending time with family and, and all that's fine. But, but for us, for us who are Christians, I mean, whether you have a new suit or an old suit, whether you came to church this morning in blue jeans or your pajama bottoms, I'm grateful today that Jesus got up from the grave with all power in his hands. And he did that to give us hope this morning. No matter where you're at, what stage of life you are in. Paul is going to paint a picture here of our spiritual condition that was so dire, so hopeless, so devastating that only this type of divine power could bring dead souls to life. Indeed, we need nothing more, nothing less, excuse me, than a spiritual resurrection. So let's begin with this truth this morning. All right, apart from Christ Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Apart from Christ Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Let me, let's just read those verses again, one through three. Here it is, here's what he says. Very bleak picture. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience 
among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. These verses describe our spiritual condition before Christ. And Paul pulls no punches here. How bad are we? How bad does Paul say we are? We're really, 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 really bad. (laughs) Jared Wilson put it this way. I was reading a commentary on the Gospel Coalition. He put it this way. He said, we are, what this verse says is, 1 through 3 says, is that essentially we are dead, belly-ruled, world-following devil worshipers. I mean, if you pull all those descriptors together, that's pretty bad. That's what it is. In short, Paul really says three things about the human condition. Number one, he says we're dead. Number two, he says we're disobedient. And number three, we're doomed or condemned. We are in big time trouble. All right? Dead. We're dead. Now, we need to recognize up front that this description is a description of everyone. This is not like somebody gets a pass. Like somebody can say, hey, you know, I know that a lot of these folks out here are dead, but not me. No, he says everyone is dead. This is a human problem. He says so. He, you, somebody say, well, he might just be referring to the Jews, right? Or, or, or the Ephesians. Or, or maybe he's just talking to this local church. And you say, well, then the problem is verse 3 says that we're all dead. Verse 3 brings us all into it. And then he talks about the rest of mankind. So he pulls all of us into this thing. No one is exempt. This is a human problem. And when Paul says that we're dead... He's not simply saying that we're off track and that we need a life coach. He's not saying that we're sick and we need a doctor to come and sort of give us a prescription and help us out. He's he's not saying that we're wounded and what we really need is for a surgeon to come in and give us some kind of uh, emergency surgery. We're not on a ventilator or a heart pump. We are dead. Do Do you understand what he's saying? We are dead. We are in need of nothing less than resurrection. He makes that very clear. Paul uses a word that means corpse. We're talking about a body in a coffin, spiritually speaking. He's not using a metaphor or a figure of speech. Instead, what he's doing is he's accurately describing our condition. We are dead. Dead men, totally dead. We did not come into this world. Here's what that means. We didn't come into this world with happy thoughts about God. We did not come into this world sort of morally neutral, like in a good position. If we just kind of make some wise decisions, we'll find our way to God. We were born, in fact, natural rebels. David said, in, in sin, my mother conceived me. We're born uh, hostile to God and his law. We are dead in trespasses and sins. So what's a trespass? Well, a trespass, you know what it is. Somebody says, no trespassing. A trespass is to step over the boundaries. God marks out with his law, with his word, the boundaries, the markers of where we are to live and how we are to guide our lives. And, and, and to trespass is to step all over that, is to step over that line. Then he says we're dead in our sins. To sin is to miss the mark. To miss the mark, which means you're, you're shooting at the target and your arrow doesn't like just not hit the bullseye. It just flops, hits the ground. You're way off. So a trespass and a failure, what he's saying is essentially is you've overstepped the bounds and your life is a failure. You failed completely. We're lawbreakers and failures. That's the cause of our death. And maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, you know, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I mean, how can you say that? Because 
I, I never hated God, all right? I, I never, I mean, growing up, I never consciously expressed my hatred to God. I never, you know, stuck my fist in God's face and said, God, I, you know, I, I'm rejecting you, I hate you. I never did that. So my, my thing is, I was just indifferent. You know, I, for, for me, God was just, I just don't care, you know? And, and, and so, but I never hated God. I'm just indifferent about Him. Well, if that's you, then please understand that, here's the thing, because God is perfect and worthy of all worship and respect and praise, indifference toward God is hatred toward Him. You think about this. Indifference toward God is opposition to Him because He demands our worship. A being that's perfect that demands all worship, if we are indifferent toward that being, we are opposing Him. He is the Creator and we are the creatures. He brought us into existence so that we would depend on Him. Not so that we would be selfishly independent or act like we are good enough and strong enough in this life to make it without God. See, here's the thing. We all want to go to the doctor and to have the doctor say to us, you know, we're kind of concerned that we're sick. And so we go into the office and we're a little bit nervous about it because we're afraid that when they run the MRI and they do the CAT scan and they do the test, that we're going to come back and they're going to say cancer. You know, there's that fear in us. We all want to go to the doctor and have that doctor run the test and have the doctor say to us, listen, it's not that bad. All right, don't worry. With a little bit of diet and exercise, you'll be fine. And those words are like, yes. But that's not what the Bible says about us. Our problem is morbid. Careful examination of our life reveals deadness and a lot of it. In fact, our lives before Christ is really a living testimony of our death, of our deadness. Can you remember what deadness was like? If you're not a Christian, maybe I'm going to speak directly to you very personally. You, you, you can remember it right now. You're in it. But, but before Christ, we could feel our hopelessness and our helplessness. We, we tried a thousand ways to resurrect ourselves. We tried with money, with power, with control, with pleasure. We tried to medicate and mask our pain with pills and other addictive substances. We threw ourselves to all forms of pleasure and sex and entertainment. Am I telling the truth? Is this your story? We threw ourselves to these things. We did this every day, but nothing worked. Our efforts to control and fix and manage the problem didn't work. We tried to manipulate the circumstances. Our attempts were all to give us life, but they were failed attempts. Our efforts to impress others, to amaze people, to win, to outsmart, to outmaneuver other business, business professionals and students were all failed attempts to try somehow, in some way, shape, or form, to feel worthy, to feel life. That's what we did. That's why people feel like death when they fail. To fail is death for so many people because they're banking all their hope and their significance on accomplishment, on being somebody. And if that's you this morning, what I want to say to you is this. Your only hope for yourself is to give up hope in yourself. Your only hope for yourself this morning is to give up hope in yourself. Help comes when you learn to embrace your hopelessness and acknowledge your deadness. That's hard to do. People don't naturally want to acknowledge their deadness. They don't, they don't want to say that now. And, and I know it's counterintuitive, but it's true. You've got to come to the place where you realize, I can't do this on my own. 
You see, what we think is, is that with a little more blood and sweat and tears, we can make it on our own. We lie to ourselves. But our only hope is to give up hope in ourselves and to turn to Christ. See, this is one of the reasons why we have to preach the law. We have to preach sin. We have to preach the hard news of the Bible. Because otherwise, human beings just have this tendency to think, you know, we're just sick, you know. We think that with a little bit of hard work and determination, we can get back on track. And, and that's, the, that's the danger of having a shallow view of sin. Because a shallow view of sin leads to a shallow view of salvation. This is one of the major problems in the church today. Most churches have lost almost essentially and altogether a theology of sin. Pastors are cowards scared to preach about sin, scared to stand on the Bible. They won't do it. They won't do it. And so they've lost a robust theology of sin and depravity and lostness and deadness. It's not preached today. And that's why the good news of the gospel doesn't seem to grip anyone anymore because they don't feel like they're that bad and they're not that lost. And so they don't need deliverance from anything because we've not preached faithfully sin. But when we understand the dire condition that we are in, we will understand why grace is so amazing. But grace will never be amazing outside of a robust understanding of sin. Never. We have to have text like verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians 2 because they help us understand that self-resurrection is not possible. If we're going to find life, we have to get it outside of ourselves. Robert Capon Put it this way, he said, We are tempted to think that by further, better, and more aggressive living, we can find life. But this is a fatal mistake. We will never find life in ourselves. So that's the first mark of the human condition. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Secondly, we are disobedient. Verses 2 through 3, Paul is not content to say that we were once dead in sin. No, look at the verse. Look at verse 2. He says, we walked in it. Now, the idea of walking is a lifestyle. It's a pattern of life. And, and the life we lived was a life of bondage. Like slaves, we were in bondage. Specifically, Paul mentions three areas, three things that we were enslaved to. The world, the devil, and our own flesh. And this is the only place in the Bible where these three things come together. One man called it the trio of terror because they are the greatest enemies to our soul. The world, the devil, and the flesh. The first is found in verse 2. Paul says that we are following the course of this world. The unsaved man is controlled by the world's influences, by the values of this age, which are contrary to God's values. We follow the attitudes the habits, the lifestyle of our culture. And because of that bondage, we are in desperate need for Jesus to, as the New Testament says, to rescue us from this present evil age. It is so seductive. It's so alluring. I mean, you find yourself, even as a Christian, and you've been a Christian for decades, getting sort of trapped by it. It's just so strong. It's like a vortex. And, and as you, if you get anywhere close to it, it just sucks you in. And you can feel the power of this culture. That's why people cave all the time on issues that matter. It's just because culture is so strong. But notice, it's just not the world that holds us in bondage. We're under the control of Satan himself. Paul says that, we're not, that we not only follow the course of this world, but look at this, that we follow the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? It's the spirit 
that's now at work in sons of disobedience. This language is amazing. In, in the Gospels, God, the, Satan is called the ruler of demons. He's called the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age. And notice verse 2 that Satan is at work. Who's he at work in? He's at work in sons of disobedience. That means everyone outside of Christ is under the control and influence of Satan. You think about that. Everyone outside of Christ in some way is under the influence and control of Satan. If that's true, I was thinking about this in preparation for this message. Why do we put so much hope in people, in flesh? Why why do we put so much hope in, in, in structures? I mean, we do this all the time. Let me just use an example. Politics, for example. We're always putting so much hope and we're banking so much trust that the political system somehow will fix it. And so Christians, well-meaning Christians, what we're doing is, in a sense, is sometimes we're, we're trying to get the guy elected that we think will, will make a difference. And, and, and in a way, we wouldn't say it this way, but we're trying to get saints to live, we're trying to get sinners to live like saints. When they're under the control of the evil one, that can't happen. We're having a hard enough time in the church trying to get saints to live like saints. <laughs> Much less to get sinners to live like saints. And ironically, we, it's just this is how it works. I mean, now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm thankful for Christians that are involved with politics. But let's make sure that we always remember that this world will not change by political influence alone. It is under the influence of Satan. You cannot legislate morality. You cannot pass a bill that makes people love other people. People have a spiritual issue. A true and lasting change will only come when the church steps back into the pulpit and begins to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully and powerfully with the help and anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's going to take a heart change. Culture changes when people's hearts change, and only God can do that. See, the thing is, if we could fix it, if we could fix it from the outside in, then Buddha would have been enough. Confucius would have been enough. Aristotle would have been enough, but that wasn't effective and it didn't work, indicating that we need something more. Argument and legislation are not enough. We have to preach to the consciences of people through the power of the Holy Spirit, and only through that will people be changed. So without Christ, we are slaves Slaves to the world, slaves to the devil, and finally we're slaves to our own flesh. Verse 3, Paul says that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Just thinking about my own life, I was thinking about how true this was of me before I was a Christian. Living in the passions of my flesh. Galatians 5, Paul lists some of these fleshly desires. Anger. Sexual immorality, idolatry, fighting, jealousy, fits of anger, rival, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Pretty descriptive. Pretty clear what he's talking about. It just pretty, sounds like our world, right? But here, here's the thing. How, ironically, people just feel like, well, you know, that's bad, but I'm not, I'm not part of that. I want to take a pass on that. Like, I'm not a part of that. I, I, I'm not, I'm, you know... They act like this is about some crazy tribal people somewhere. You know, we're acting fighting and jealousy and fits of anger and rage and orgies. This is some crazy tribe over there somewhere, right? And, and obviously the answer is no. What does Paul say? He, I, I love the Bible because the Bible, just when we want to sort of excuse ourselves, the Bible calls our bluff. 
It tells on us. He says right here that all of us once lived this way. Locked up with the cravings of our own flesh. Romans 1, Paul talks about God giving people over to their sinful passions. You know the greatest judgment that could ever fall upon you in this life is for God to give you over to your own passions. To give you over. To release his hand on you. To let you live and rule and run with your passions as crazy as you want to. That's why people ruin their lives. Because they cannot control their lust and their passions. You know why they can't control it? Not because they don't have enough self-control. That's what the world says. Hey, you just need to step up. You need to have a little bit more willpower. And Paul says, that, that's crazy theology. Your, this guy's heart needs to be changed. He can't just sort of muster up enough strength to stop it. You see, it's in our DNA. We are infected with sin We are totally depraved. Every aspect of our being is infected with sin. And closely related to this idea of depravity is what the Bible says about our total inability to do anything about the disease. I mean, we are incapable of changing ourselves. Uh, In fact, we don't even want to change. What we should be praying is, oh God, save me from myself. We destroy ourselves. And it's interesting to think that when God saves us, he's not just saving us from the wrath of God. He's not just saving us from hell. He's saving us from ourselves. And if he doesn't, we will destroy ourselves. And that's why Paul says here, look at this next phrase, that we are by nature children of wrath. Which leads us to our third thing, that we are doomed. We are absolutely doomed. Now that sounds harsh. But any way you look at it, our destiny as children of wrath is rightly deserved. It is. Whether you look at it externally or internally. Whether you look at it naturally or spiritually. We are guilty and we are hopeless apart from Christ. Now, this is the consistent testimony of God's word. You cannot read the Bible fairly and not come away with a strong conviction in man's depravity and total inability. You say, really? Make the case. All right, let me try. Let me give it my best shot here. Matthew, Mark 7, 9 says we were defiled and unclean in our hearts and lives before God. John three eighteen, we are in a state of condemnation before God. John three nineteen, we love the darkness rather than the light. John three twenty, we hate the light and do not come to the light. John six forty four, we cannot come to Christ. John eight thirty four, we are slaves to sin. Romans three ten, we have no righteousness in ourselves. Romans three eleven, we do not understand or seek God. Romans three twelve, there is no one who does good because we do nothing for the glory of God. Romans three thirteen through seventeen, we are violent, destructive people. Romans eight seven, we are hostile to God. Romans eight seven, we cannot submit to the law of God. Romans eight eight, we cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, we do not receive the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12.3, we cannot even confess Christ as Lord without God's help. 
Galatians 1.4, we are captives of the present evil age. Galatians 3.10, we are cursed by the law. Galatians 5.16-18, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature. Ephesians 2.12, no hope and without God in this world. Ephesians 4.17, futile in our minds. Ephesians 4.18, darkened in our understanding. 4.18, alienated from the life of God. Colossians 1.21, Hostile in our minds toward God. 2 Timothy 2.26, captives of Satan. 1 John 1.6, walked in darkness. 1 John 1.8, self-deceived. 1 John 2.9-11, in darkness. 1 John 3.8, we are of the devil. 1 John 3.14, we abide in, in death. 1 John 4.1-6, we're held captive by a spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 4.8, we do not know God. 1 John 5.21, we are idol worshipers. Wow. Nobody likes to paint that picture of mankind. But when you read the word of God, friends, it is absolutely inescapable. We are dead and disobedient and doomed. If God does not take the first step towards us, we have no hope. Can you feel that? You It takes a while to kind of get there. John Piper is right. He said it this way. He said, we're not in the doghouse. We're we're in the morgue. Telling Telling dead people to try harder is like telling a corpse in a coffin to get up. We don't need an educator. We don't need a therapist. We don't need a motivator. We desperately need a savior. So Paul walks us down a set of stairs from verses one to three. So that by the time that we get to the end, we're somewhere in the basement of our secret lust and cravings. We are trapped with nowhere to turn. And just at that time, having sunk all the way to the bottom, just when the gates of hell had opened wide its mouth with its thirsty jaws to consume us, we hear two of the sweetest words in all of the Bible. But God... This is the greatest but God in the Bible. How can it be? I mean, he just described us in verses 1 through 3, terribly unloving, messed up people. And now he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. With which he loved us. Loved us? You mean love those people that I just got through describing? Loved us? Really, how can God love us? Well, let's do some gospel math. You have to understand how the gospel works. How can God love us? Here's how it works. God's love always precedes our loveliness. God doesn't love us because we're lovely. God loves us in order to make us lovely. Every other area of society, loveliness precedes love. People are trying so hard to to wear the right thing and to look the right way and to act the right way because they want people to love them. They they, they want to become lovely first so that somebody else will love them. But God's God's work is totally upside down. It's totally backward from this. He turns this completely upside down. God says before we were lovely, in fact, while we were remarkably unlovable, God, being rich in mercy, put his love on us. Do you feel that? Do you feel the power of what it means for God, who I love to call the hound of heaven, for the hound of heaven to track us down and to overtake us in his love? I mean, we were running from him 
And he comes running after us and he just tackles us in his love. And we roll over and we don't know what hit us. And we turn around and we look up and God has embraced us with his love. Who does that? Like, what, who does that for their enemy? Who does that for somebody who's the deplorable, wicked, disgusting thing? But that's what God does. There is nothing like the love of God. It doesn't make sense to us. We read Ephesians 2, and, and it just doesn't make sense. God's grace seems like a contradiction. It is, in fact, a contradiction to who we are. It reverses the human condition. The grace of God creates life where there is only death. It accomplishes salvation where there is only sin. The grace of God does not make sense in these verses because, here's why, because it doesn't flow from the diagnosis of verses 1 through 3. It it doesn't work. There's a disconnect. Verses 1 through 3, there's this terrible picture of man. But then verse 4 comes in and you just feel like, how in the world can you put these two things together? It doesn't make sense. The grace of God we see here is love that seeks you out when you had nothing to give in return. it's, it's indiscriminate compassion. It's God giving you his best when you are at your worst. In that sense, it's reckless in its generosity. It is uncomfortably promiscuous. It doesn't conduct performance evaluations. It doesn't look at your life and use time cards and weights and measures It doesn't look at your merit or deservedness. It doesn't give a rip about your resume. It doesn't take any of that thing into account. And praise God, it doesn't. Because if my resume did count before God, I would be in big time trouble. But God says, I'm throwing your resume out. I'm throwing your failed resume out. I'm taking your report card that has a big F on it. And I'm going to wad it up. And I'm going to nail it to my son on the cross and I'm going to take care of your F and I'm going to give you through Jesus a perfect A. That, that's the gospel. It's incredible. God's grace meets us in our greatest point of failure. I think it was Tully and Chavidjan who first put it this way. He defined grace this way. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving sinner by an unobligated giver. And I think that's a helpful way to say it. It's an unconditional acceptance giving to undeserving sinners like you and me by an unobligated giver. He's not obligated to give you that. He's not obligated to bless you, but he does. Well, that leads us to the second thing that we see this morning, that with Christ we are made spiritually alive. And verses 4 through 7, as I've already said, are absolutely amazing when you juxtapose it with 1 through 3, as horrible as verses 1 through 3 are. Verses 4 through 7 could not be more wonderful. Because here we're introduced to words like alive and grace and saved and raised and heaven and kindness. You know, all this stuff seated with him in heavenly places. Because of the great reversal in verse 4, these are the words that dominate our lives now. Consider the contrast here. Before, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, we're alive together with Christ. Before, we were sons of disobedience. Now, we're raised together with Christ. Before, we were children of wrath. But now, we're seated with Him in heavenly places. And what do we owe this salvation to? We owe it ultimately to the character of God. 
Paul uses four words here to describe the character of God. Great. He starts with God's mercy, verse 4. Rich in mercy. Then he talks about God's great love, verse 4. And then he talks about God's, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And then he ends with kindness, mercy, love, grace, kindness. This is the character of God. If God was not a, a, a merciful, loving, gracious, and kind God, then we as fugitives and rebels would be left in that condition. But because of his mercy, because of his grace, because of his great love, because of his immeasurable kindness, he moves toward us in love. Paul is, is in a sense, what he's saying is that God's love outran his justice in our life. It overtook it. God's love overtook us. Paul's intent is to show us that given our condition, only mercy could reach us in such a helpless state. Only love could triumph over God's wrath. Only grace could rescue us from what we deserve. And only kindness could move God to do what he did for us. And what did he do for us? I mean, just according to this text, what did he do? Three things. He made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us with him in heavenly places. First, he he made us alive. Christianity is not about you being a better person. Christianity is not about being a better person. It's about becoming a new person entirely. It, It This is what it means to be born again when we are dead in our sin. God breathed life into us. Now, I want to put a a text of Scripture on the screen for you to see. I I can't think of a better image of this than Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, and I want to just look at verses 4 through 7 because what, what an incredible example this is. In Ezekiel 16, 4 through 7 What we have is a picture of regeneration. God is speaking to Israel. And in Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 4, he says, he likens our sort of, you you think you'll really see the parallels here between this and Ephesians because he likens our spiritual deadness in our condition to a baby that was tossed out into a field. You know, back then in, in, in old times to abort a child, you would, you would basically essentially have a child and you would throw him out. You would expose him to the elements post-birth. And that's the picture that we have here. It says, as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut. How cruel. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. How cruel. Nor were you rubbed with salt, nor were you wrapped in swaddling clothes. No I, no no I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But what happened? You were cast into an open field for you were abhorred. This is God speaking to Israel. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. But, but God, right? But But when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. This is a picture of regeneration. God comes to a dead baby that is absolutely abhorred 
thrown out into the open field, not lovable in any way, done nothing but deserve wrath, picks up this, but, and don't think of an innocent child here, okay? Think about, think about an adult. Think about a murderer. You think about, you think about the worst, most disgusting man that's ever walked the earth for a moment, okay? You think about an ISIS, maybe commander, ruler, somebody who's beheading people. You think about somebody who's murdering Christians. You think about a, just, just an awful situation. And God comes to that disgusting heap of sin, in all of its blood, squirming in all of its sin. And God picks it up. And God says to it, live. That's what happens when a man's regenerated. God takes his divine arrow and he pulls it back. And he shoots that arrow to your heart. And it sticks right there in your heart. And for the first time... In your life, your eyes are opened. You see reality for the first time. You feel God. You sense his presence. You know him. You've been made alive. This is what God does when he regenerates a man. And it just goes to show that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. no, No matter how hard you are, you walked in here this morning. You don't give a rip about Jesus. You just can't wait till this is done because you have to check off the box and go to your Easter service. But here's the thing, God can and will often take his arrow and fire that right into your heart. It's an arrow of love. It's an arrow of mercy. It's an arrow of grace. And when it sticks in your heart and you see him for the first time and you realize that God has moved upon you with his love and kindness, he has overtaken you. The hound of heaven has tracked you down and has tackled you in his love. And you see his mercy for the first time. Your life changes. I pray that that will happen for someone here this morning. This is, a, this is amazing. God made us alive. Second, what did he do? He raised us up. Which is obviously a clear allusion to the resurrection of Jesus. We were raised together with Christ. P.T. O'Brien, a, a phenomenal New Testament commentator, put it this way. He said, what God did for us. Sorry, what God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. And I think what what he means by that is is in some astonishing way, when Jesus got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, we got up with him. Our spiritual deadness was raised with him. We're in union with Christ. When Jesus got up from the grave, death was defeated. Not just physical death, but your death. Your deadness was defeated. Victory was won. God raised us up. So God made us alive. That's what he did in his mercy. God being rich in mercy. The great love with which he loved us. What did he do? He made us alive. Then he raised us up. All right. And and in one motion, in one motion, he raises us up. In the next motion, what does he do? He makes us sit. He sits us with him in heavenly places. This is a beautiful image because to sit down is to rest. I'm, I'm standing here, and if I stay here too long, I'm going to get tired. So somebody had to provide a chair for me to sit down. And, and or I'll go take a seat. And when I leave here and I go walk down there and take a seat, I'm done. That means I'm done. Taking a seat is an image of completion. It signifies completion. And in the Old Testament, the priest served in the area of the temple that had three things in it. It had a table. It had a lampstand. And it had a basin for washing one's hands. 
But you know what was missing in the temple in that area of the temple? A chair. There was no chair. People, because people only sit down when the work is done. The image is that before Christ came, the work of the priest was never done. I mean, another sacrifice had to be made. Another confession had to be made. Another offering had to be given. But when Jesus came as the final offering, as the ultimate priest, he laid down his perfect life. He took it up again. He raised his own life out of the grave with power. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what did he do? He sat down. No other priest had ever sat down. But Jesus, when he died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, sat down. And here's the awesome thing. Ephesians 2 tells us that when he sat down, Jesus is not the only one Sitting, but we are sitting with him. We are seated together with Christ. Our salvation has been secured. We are resting in his completed work. Your work, your effort to to, to be saved, your effort to work your way in. It's finished. Jesus did your work for you, which means you get to sit down with Jesus. This is what God did. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with Christ in heavenly places. Now, of course, there's a climax here. I mean, all this stuff that we've talked about, that we thought about, what, where's it all leading to? It's all leading to a great, grand purpose. Why did God do all of this? Well, let's end where Paul ends in verse 7. What's the purpose? He did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My son is in preschool this year, and I think on Thursdays he has show and tell. And it's kind of interesting because we got to find little things to, you know, for him to show and tell, figure out what does he want to show. And it's always something like a truck or a tractor or something like that. And we'll stick it in his bag, and he comes. He, he's so excited. He can't wait to show everybody his, you know, his thing. And he does his show and tell. And it's cute with a kid. And, but, but here's what's going on here, okay? God is doing his show and tell right here. God is saying, I've got a show and tell that I want to do for the world that is on a massive proportion. <laughs> okay? I'm going to take wrecked sinners... I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to wash them. I'm going to go over little babies that are dead and squirming their blood and tell them to live. I'm going to do some miracles like that. I'm going to rework some hearts. I'm going to change some people so radically. And, and, and God's wise because when God saved you, he knew what he was doing. He, God knew that, that some people also knew you before you were a Christian. Okay, And he knew that when you got saved, people would look at your life and they'd be able to see a huge difference. And so the idea is that God is showing off his glory and his grace. If you ever wondered why God created you, here it is. This is the reason God wants to display the riches of his grace. God wants you to reflect on your past. He wants you to reflect on what God has done for you. He wants you to show the world what has happened in your life. One of the illustrations I love of this is the lame man. When Jesus heals the paralytic, what does he tell him? He heals him. He says, take up your what? Your bed and walk. Did you ever wonder why he says, take up your bed? Why don't you just tell him you're healed? God bless you. Have a good day. He tells him to take up your bed because the purpose was to show the world that the thing that he was bound to 
he is now delivered from. The thing that once held him down, that he was strapped to, he is free from. And likewise, in the same way, God wants us to pick up our bed. To show the world that the thing that held us in bondage and in slavery, we have picked up by his grace and we have moved on and we are no longer enslaved or in bondage to that stuff. We're free. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. Everything is new for us. We have picked up our bed. We've moved on. You were, you were saved not because you're smarter or stronger than anyone else. We were saved not because we're better than anyone else. We were saved because God wanted, in fact, to show the world how much he can do with so little. Do you understand that? God saved us to show us how much he can do with so little. He just looks at this thing, this, this his heap of, of depravity. And, 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 he, and he turns this heap of depravity into something remarkable for his glory. Some people are foolish enough to think that we actually were saved because we were smart or talented or gifted. But you and I both know that that's not true. What really happened is God is showing what he can do with a totally wrecked life. God says, God says, you see what I made out of that lump of clay? Do you see what I did with that son of disobedience, with that child of wrath? Do you see what I did? I picked up that jar of clay and I began touching it. And I began touching it and I kept touching it and I kept forming it and I kept shaping it. And I did so and I kept touching it and molding it and I turned it into this beautiful, remarkable vessel for my glory. This is the story of your life. This is the story of my life if we're a Christian. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 exist for the praise of the glory of His grace. This text is our biography if you're a Christian But it's not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about the praise of the glory of His grace. Who who else can do this in your life? Friends, if, if Ephesians 2 teaches us anything, you cannot resurrect yourself. You cannot help yourself. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please understand that God is disposed to show you mercy. And God will take all the hurt, broken, messed up, destroyed pieces of your life. And God will fix that. And he will fix it for his glory. And he will make you into a trophy of his grace. And I invite you warmly to come to Jesus this morning. You know what you need to do? You just need to just surrender. You know? It's the police mode. You put your hands up. You put your hands behind your back. And you need to say, God, arrest me. I, I'm done. I'm done fighting. I'm done running. I want. And when you... When, when Jesus makes you his own, okay, ironically, this, this, this image right here is freedom, okay? Because as soon as this happens, what you feel is this. Woo! Okay? You don't feel this. You don't feel like a burden. Oh, man, I hate being a Christian, man. This is so hard. I don't like all this. No, you feel free and alive for the first time. You have purpose and hope in your life. Okay, see, that's the thing. And you've got to understand it because one of the things the devil wants to keep telling you is that if you become a Christian, your life is over, man. No more fun, right? Your life's ruined, right? It's gonna be terrible. You're gonna have all these rules and you have to go to church all the time. It's a lie from Satan. When you get saved, freedom comes for the first time. Life, joy, peace, hope. 
purpose in life. That's what you need to understand. So, will you come to him today? You ask any Christian in here if they're disappointed that they gave their life to Jesus. You're not going to find one. Which just proves the fact that when we give our hearts to Jesus, we really are free. So I invite you warmly to come, all right? That's what he's done for us. And I just want us to close this way. I want us to say with David, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story of redemption. We are grateful. We are thankful. Lord, and I just pray that you would move even now in the hearts and lives of, of, of people here that you would open up the hearts, Lord, that that divine arrow of regenerating grace would be pulled back and shot into the heart of some here that they would see for the first time how, how awesome you are, how merciful, how kind, how gracious, how loving you are, that they would feel that and that this would be the day that, that their whole life changes. For the rest of us that are saved, May we just enjoy and bask and rejoice in the fact that he is risen and we are free. In Jesus' name, amen.